You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the show where we take a wander around the week in Apple, Apple News, Reviews, Technology, Associated Products and all sorts of other things that catch our eye. This is another episode of the Essential Apple Podcast. Hello again and welcome to this second part of my chat with John Chigi. Uh, there's no hardware store this week and um, to be honest I'm not going to bother filling in any of this week's not very exciting news. I'm going to go straight over to John and we will carry on where we left off. So uh, a slightly shorter show than usual but I hope you enjoy it anyway. Until next time, see you soon. This week uh, joining me to talk about what Apple news there isn't is John Chigi, uh, bubble sort, stalwart, and uh, head of the engineered network. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, it's it's always um it's always nice um to come on a podcast that I've actually listened to um you know for for quite a while. So thank you, thank you for coming on. Um, well, uh, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about some of the other podcasts that you are involved with, uh, John? Okay. Uh, well, you you mentioned the first one. Um, so I am one of the three uh, members of Bubble Sort, um, the the original Bubble Sort. There's a sort of a splitter off um, series of the TV shows, which has a whole bunch of other people on them as well. Uh, but um, the one that started it all was uh, myself, uh, Vic Hudson, and uh, CW Daily, and um, that's been going now for a couple of years. And it's just a you know fun thing we do periodically. I wouldn't. It's certainly not weekly. Uh, it's every two to four weeks, depending upon when we can find the time. Just a bit of fun, really. Um, so that's bubble sort, but, um, longer than that, I've been also, uh, I started out most, uh, the, I'm most well known for pragmatic, uh, which has been going since, uh, 2013. And, um, I, a few years ago, two or three years ago, I started, uh, a, a very small, uh, podcast network, uh, called the engineer network. And, um, so I continued to do pragmatic. I also started another, um, podcast, which has turned out to be quite um, popular called causality, um, that looks into the cause and effect of um of disasters and incidents in history and looking for things that we could uh learn so that we can prevent them and uh it's got a very very much an engineering bent as you'd expect uh from the top of the name of the network (laughs) and there's a couple other ones on there as well so um so yeah i've been podcasting a while and um yeah it's uh it's it's a bit of fun so yeah i enjoy doing it excellent well um Microsoft has bad news for Windows 10 haters. Uh, this is a clickbaity headline by Forbes. Oh, hang on. I should I should do my I should do my thing, shouldn't I? I should do the uh... clickbait alert. There we go. <laughs> um, be, and as usual, the headline is not really what the story's about. Um, it's Windows 7 is end of life as of January uh, 2020, and. Uh, if you are, uh, you know, adamant that you must continue to use Windows 7, which is uh, to some extent something um, Guy and I were talking about, saying we understand why, you know, in enterprise situations, these these OSs often, you know, don't, they don't, enterprises don't move on to the 
latest OS until the OS they're on is actually end of life and possibly the uh you know the 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 OS that they move to is effectively already being replaced by a new newer version effectively they run at least one step behind um I kind of can understand that, but also if you insist on staying on Windows 7 as a corporate identity and you re- wish to retain security support, i.e. patches, it's going to cost you £200, per, uh, $200 sorry, US per seat, uh, you know, per year, which uh, I guess is uh, nice money for Microsoft if there are people who refuse to give up Windows 7 and a big incentive to companies with a lot of Windows 7 PCs to get out of the past. Yeah. They, do you have anything really to add to that? I would add one one point and just one, and that is um, we actually do have some machines at work that are still running Windows 7, I am uh, ashamed to say. Uh, and they've been flagged to be upgraded for, well, not just this reason, but it's a very good reason to do it. Um, there, there's other reasons as well, like there's other vulnerabilities that are more difficult or will be more, become more difficult to manage in future. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're acutely aware of this and uh, we're, we're going to get on that any, any day now. It's, uh, it's happening. <laughs> well, it, interestingly, in this article, uh, as they point out, Windows 10 uh, has a 44.1% share of the overall operating system market in April. Uh, I guess that was uh, 2018. Um, mm. Maybe it's not. They don't, they're not clear. Um, but Windows 7 still accounts for 36.43%. Um, yeah, and that has barely fallen since... The, uh, December last year. Okay, so that April was this April then, April 2019. Um, the figure has barely moved since from 36.9% December last year. Uh, that's an awful lot of people on Windows 7. Um, yeah, and I'm guessing that that is nearly all um, corporate. Uh, yeah. I, I would I would, I would assume. Yeah, I would say so. And, and the thing I is, Windows 7, is it, it was so, it, remember that was how you escaped Vista. So mm. there are a lot of people saying, God, just Zip Vista was bad. Big, big mistake. Go to Windows 7. Everything will be fine now. Ugh. Anyway, yeah, that, that is a lot of people, though. It, it, it was interesting when we were talking about it. Um, obviously, we were talking about like Windows 8. Um, I used Windows 8.1, uh, and it was a perfectly good operating system. However, you know, 8.0, which shipped with the tile interface by default, mm. uh, was like Vista, a massive PR disaster, and people then refused to go to Windows 8, um, even though 8.1 was a perfectly good operating system. There we are. Um, that's an awful lot of people who are going to be on what is a no longer security-supported system, I have to say. There we are. Um, Adobe CC is removing uh, the ability to download older versions of Photoshop and Lightroom, um, apparently, uh, and possibly other apps, I I would guess, because, for example, um, until recently, if you went into your uh, Adobe Creative Cloud you know, applications, it would say, for example, you know, uh, Adobe Illustrator, current version CC 2019, and you could click on other versions and several older versions would be available to download and install instead. So you could download and install 2018, 2017, 2016, whatever. I don't know how many back they went. Um, Now, apparently, it's going to be limited to only the last two versions. So, um, 
I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I mean, they're, they're transitioning everything across to their um to the creative cloud model, and everything's a subscription, isn't it? It is, and to some extent, I guess if you're on a subscription, why would you, you know, you would almost certainly say, why would you want to be running um, an older version? I mean, mm. obviously at work we have a, you know, we have a Adobe Creative Cloud, and uh, I run Photoshop 2019, uh, Adobe Illustrator 2019, but weirdly we are still using InDesign 2017. And the reason for that is that there are a variety of Macs of different vintages across uh, our, you know, across our studio. And the one um, application which several people need to be able to access on a variety of different machines is InDesign. Because with Photoshop, you open a document, you edit it, you save it either as a PSD or a JPEG or whatever, and that can be opened in you know another person if they're using a different version of photoshop that doesn't prevent them from opening it um right. and the same with adobe illustrator you open a document or create a document and edit it and save it and you can save it as an eps or a pdf or whatever and uh, thus you can go to an older version of illustrator and you can still open that and where with the indesign you know you're working you have to work on the indesign document um and the truth is some of the machines used by uh, some of the people in our studio are now you know getting a bit long in the tooth and they would struggle to run adobe indesign 2019 so that's what we you know we're kind of locked to the lowest common denominator on that one um that said i'm not sure that i would want to be i mean that's effectively your three versions back if you like um but i'm pretty sure that that's as far as we'd let it go because well i would hope but um i don't know i don't know what to think about that really <laughs> just i mean what adobe do and do not let you download is kind of up to them isn't it and if you don't like that and you don't like their subscription model move well i think a lot of people are going to be doing that i mean some people have already said that um you know capture one i think is is becoming more popular for uh uh, I think it's there's a uh, Photoshop. No, sorry. no it's a Lightroom. Lightroom. It's a Lightroom yeah. type um, product, as is Luminar, obviously uh, from yes. Skylum. That is a very very good product. Um, I I have a copy, um, basically because um, when they came on the show, Skylum gifted me a copy of Luminar. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not a photographer. Um, I barely take any photographs. However, Luminar is a really really good Lightroom replacement. It's still not perfect. Um, they have, you know, various things they're adding, but it has uh, uh, digital asset management now. Um, they haven't yet done the Lightroom library migration tool, I don't think, which is something they'd promised. But it's a fabulous tool. And even if you're a total non-photographer klutz like me, um, it has this wonderful slider system where you can just sort of <laughs> go, ooh, and a, a million presets with kind of um, image quote unquote AI where you can throw an image at it and go make that better for me and it does it and um, that, that's a great option I, I think again Adobe may be falling into the uh, you know too far too far into their ivory tower um, I don't think they're aware of how much they are upsetting a lot of people um, and I think yeah. they, they they're at risk of falling into the Quark Ex Express trap um, for people who are not in my field, uh, Quark Express was uh, a desktop publishing uh, program, and it was king of the hill. Um, they captured the the industry um, by coming along with a desktop publishing 
package, which also supported uh, important pre-press features like uh, CMYK separation. Um, and at that point, Quark Express captured the newspapers, the magazines, the publishers, uh, the print world, and they thought they'd got it made. Everybody was using Quark Express. You could, you know, in my trade at one point, do you have Quark Express experience? Was If the answer was no, you wouldn't get a job. Um, but they became, uh, you know, it, like many monopolistic positions, they felt that they had it all and they could do what they liked. And they got fat and lazy and, uh, to be honest, started treating their users like... And uh, that's how Adobe stole their crown because they already had Photoshop and they had Illustrator um, and they had had PageMaker, which they'd bought from Aldous. But PageMaker, I'll be honest, a lovely product though it was, did not have the technical abilities that um, Quark had at the time. So mm -hmm. Adobe, Adobe then re, uh, you know, built a new product called InDesign from the ground up using PageMaker as their pattern. In other words, they took the kind of whole PageMaker idiom, which I always preferred over Quark Express anyway, and made it into a modern desktop publisher and with all the features that uh, people like me were crying out for. And then they marketed it aggressively, uh, cheaply, and would do, also would do packages, which would be, uh, you know, a design package, and that would get you InDesign and Illustrator and Photoshop, uh, where, of course, all Quark could sell you was Quark Desktop Publishing. And uh, they ate Quark's lunch. And uh, Quark probably still control newspapers um, and possibly some magazine publishers. But in the general print arena, nobody uses Quark anymore. It's been destroyed because yeah. they got fat and lazy. And I, I think Adobe are in danger of uh, forgetting their own lesson. And uh, very much at the moment, Serif, uh, who came mm. from the Windows world, who, you know, with their affinity products affinity photo affinity designer and soon to be joined with the affinity publisher are very much coming in and and effectively doing an adobe on adobe they're bringing in mm -hmm. some adobe level products and selling them at a measly 50 you know 50 quid a go uh, and no subscription buy your you know buy your piece of software and it's yours forever um so yes affinity photo is seems to be very much the choice uh Photoshop replacement. Um, and of course, everybody uses a photo editor. So you're hearing a lot more about that than you are about um, products like Illustrator. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm not necessarily 100% against subscriptions with certain types of thing. And to some extent, Adobe Creative Cloud is one of those things where I can see from um, my company's point of view that that's a far more efficient way of paying for it. You know, we mm. have four, four seats. Um, you know, when it was a thousand quid a pop every time there was a, an update, how did you update the whole studio? You know, you had to suddenly find four thousand quid. Um, that's not an easy proposition. Um, when you're paying, I don't know what it is, you know, thirty eight pound per head per month. Um, and every update as it comes along, that's a much more palatable for the accounts department and the management team. And I understand that. Um, so maybe Adobe don't really care if um a lot of smaller people fall away but the trouble with that is when you cease being the de facto standard you're at risk of no longer being relevant either so yeah exactly right so i guess time will tell whether or not they're, they're cutting their own legs off um but yeah it's um i think that one of the great things in the space that most of the adobe products are in is that there is much more healthy competition today than there was in the past 
So oh yes, very much so. I mean, uh, photo editors have always been ten a penny, um, and they range. Uh, as we, you know, uh, me and Guy were talking about last week, from the very simple, you know, things like Flying Mates Acorn, um, which in no way are, in no way, no way, shape or form are in, even intended to go up against something like Photoshop. Uh, through products like Pixelmator, you know, there's a there's a slew of products, including Adobe's own Photoshop elements, which yeah. you know it, it goes it goes up against Photoshop for, but uh, you know, aimed very much at home users. Um, at the top end, then, you know, as your direct Photoshop uh, competitors, for a long time, there haven't been any. Now there are, you know, there is um, there is Affinity Photo and there are um, people like uh, Capture One and a couple of others, you know, e- entering the fray, um, which is good. Competition is good because monopolies tend to lead to fat, lazy corporations who can't be bothered to move forward. They just sit on their cash pile and rub their hands with glee. <laughs> yeah, but that probably feels very nice. But in 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 truth, for them, but never yeah. mind. But it, yeah, but it, as we know, it never lasts. This is the trouble. Yeah. It does not no. last. Um, as we were talking about batteries and the like, uh, there's mm. a couple of stories here about graphene, mm. and again, something that before the show you said you've been following. Um, you know the history of graphene. A couple of weeks ago, we had a story about um a sulfur-based magic material that somebody kind of discovered by accident. A um, couple of pieces here. A graphene breakthrough hints at a future for battery power. From uh, These both stories are from Wired. Um, one is an article about using graphene to make supercapacitors, which I mm. didn't know what that was, but a supercapacitor is... Well, we know what a capacitor does. It stores electricity to some, uh, for a short term at least. Um, graphene supercapacitors apparently can be charged up with electricity, um, and as they described it, in the same way as you might stick a um, static charge to a balloon. Um, and then it can be used to you know, run like a battery. Uh, the downside is that apparently these, uh, you know, they discharge themselves within hours, not days, uh, if left, um, and they don't have massive capacities in and of themselves at the moment. However, in this article, they're saying a, uh, a breakthrough hints at the possibility of making um, graphene part of the even the structure of, uh, for example, vehicles, where so that in effect the whole chassis and body of your car would become a battery. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah su- super caps. Yeah, the supercaps are a, a fascinating uh, technology. Uh, I first came across them about twenty years ago uh, in the uh, the programmable logic controllers or PLCs that I was working on at the time, and they were transitioning away from uh, a you know nickel metal hydride backup battery, and all it did was just maintain the memory and the uh, the real time clock. And they were shifting to these things called supercaps, and uh, the supercaps essentially were designed to just sit there and maintain the charge at the same bus voltage when they are powered on. So the idea is that when the power went off, then they would continue to power the rest of this, you know, the, the real time clock and the memory uh, for days or weeks at a time until the power comes back on again. Uh, so same kind of functionality as a battery, but they never degraded over time because they were just a capacitor holding a charge between two plates. And, and that's great on a small scale, but on a large scale, it's very hard to, well, make it scale and uh, one of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, this particular idea is that graphene which is uh, that single layer 
um, carbon fiber, I suppose, sheet, if you will. Um, yes, it's a, it's a nanomolecular sheet, isn't it? Yeah, That's the... exactly. And, and, and being a perfect sheet may, means that it could be a perfect barrier, which means if it's a perfect barrier, then it's possible for you to layer multiple together to create a, um, a miniature or highly energy-dense um, supercapacitor, which is great uh, if you can pull it off. And um, I think that the the ideas around um, the hybrid are the ones that are the most uh, most appealing for the minute. Because if you think about um, uh, just regenerative braking, so at the moment, if you hit on hit the brakes in an electric car and you're regeneratively uh, trying to store that charge, it takes time and there's a current limit to how much you can shove into a lithium-ion battery. Whereas with a supercap, it's practically limitless. I say practically, I mean it's not, but it's you can yeah, you can a- shove charge in there much faster so anyway the idea is if you put them in there as a hybrid it can buffer between your your um regenerative braking as well as uh the the converse you can then use that uh that stored charge to accelerate again and um and some kind of a hybrid solution is probably what we'll start seeing more of in coming you know decades years and decades um eventually i can I hope the technology advances to a point where we can just get rid of the lithium-ion battery completely. Well, the part of the um, part of the story uh, a couple of weeks ago about this um, sulfur kind of ribbons, which again was a nano, you know, molecular yeah. technology, mm-hmm. was that uh, they were not only had they already worked on um, producing this stuff commercially, which uh, as before the show you said it's one thing to demonstrate something in a lab, it's another to make a, a product. Um, was that they were hoping that by using this um, kind of uh, sulfur crystal ribbon, I forget the exact way that they said they might be able to do it, but they would be. They were hoping that they would be able to replace lithium ions in battery technology with sodium ions, um, because sodium ions are plentiful and easy to get mm-hmm. out of salt, for example, uh, whereas lithium is not. Um, Anyway, this wired story. Uh, so, I mean, you know, if you kind of could combine these kind of technologies together, well, that would be fabulous, really. I mean, everybody knows that although lithium-ion batteries are good, they are not really sustainable for a long-term future. If you start talking about everybody needing to run, you know, all, all the all the all the cars in the world are running on batteries, then where are we going to get enough lithium for a start? <laughs> Do we have enough lithium, really? Um, anyway, it, apparently in Belgrade, in Serbia, they have five chariot e-buses that run solely on supercapacitors. There we go. Um, and as it says here, there are reasons supercapacitors haven't replaced batteries in electric cars. They hold less energy in the same space and they do not hold it for as long. Um, as I say, this is fine for a bus because it can be charged at every stop, but it's no not useful for a car which needs to run all day. So there you go. But there are five chariot e-buses in, Bel- uh, in Belgrade uh, running on supercapacitors. Interesting story, I thought. Mm. And... Yeah, um, it- yeah, go on. I was just going to say, just wanted to quickly circle back to the whole sodium thing. Um, uh, lithium sodium, obviously, being the because um, they're they're both um, group one uh, alkali metals, and they've got a spare electron they want to give up, so they're they're highly reactive, and uh, and that's that's the nature of the problem with lithium because it reacts with everything. Um, it's it's also difficult it's difficult to extract into process. Um, once you process it, you can still recycle, which is great. But sodium, there's a lot more of it, and uh, it is much easier to extract because you know, well, salt everywhere, and uh, and so on and so forth. So one of the basic building materials you'd need for sodium is uh, is quite plentiful. Although it's not the the reaction rate is is different 
So it's um, in some respects, it's not as desirable, but it has the fact the the benefit of the fact that there's a lot of it. But um, in any case, I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, exactly. And um, apparently, with this sulfur technology that they are working on, they said that they would hopefully be able to uh, make the reaction rates faster or something. I'm not my field, but very we love. We yeah, very interesting. And we really, really like uh, battery stories on this show. Um, whenever we find stuff about battery tech, we always uh, bring it up. Um, and the second story, uh, which it followed also uh, from Wired about graphene, is physicists bewitched by twisted graphene's magic angle. Um, in what they're describing as the field of twist-tronics. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, this is uh, quite a, another interesting read. Um, the guy here, uh, who's called Gerillo Herrero, um, is working on this twist-tronics magic angle. Apparently... Uh, because uh, graphene is effectively a hexagonal grid of carbon atoms in a um, monomolecular sheet. Um, if you put another one on top of it and then force it out of alignment by uh, apparently the magic angle, um, which they were attempting to discover, apparently is 1.1 degree. Um, and if you put the second sheet on at 1.1 degree out of alignment, which apparently is not as simple as just putting another piece of paper down and twisting it because the carbon lattice wants to line up, obviously, because that's kind of how <laughs> how molecular and atomic stuff works. Um, but if you do that, you uh, create some very interesting properties, including uh, the ability for the material to go from insulator to conductor to superconductor, which um, creates all sorts of interesting uh, possibilities. Obviously, yeah, this, is all, you know, this is all very experimental stuff. This is, you know, this is not coming to a phone near you in, uh, in the next couple of years. All right. So WWDC, what to expect? Don't expect twi twist twisted graphene magic angle batteries or anything. <laughs> but um, it's interesting, uh, surprisingly interesting. Um, one of the things I can't remember what he said exactly, but the they can make it become super conductive at um i think it's a temperature of only about 150 degrees kelvin which is still bloody cold by the way but uh, normally to get the material to become superconductive you have to get down to sort of like you have to get close to absolute zero yeah um 100 yeah 140 kelvin um is uh just just uh, skimming the article there uh, 140 so it's like minus so negative 273 um is um absolute zero Not kelvin yeah yes. Not kelvin yeah yeah, so or, mm, so that that is still cold. The, the, I mean, the dream for superconductivity is um, room temperature superconductivity, and you know, I really do hope that at some point we can figure that out. But this this looks interesting, and certainly, if you can get to the point where you can get reliable superconductivity with a very cheap, um, you know, uh, refrigerant like liquid nitrogen or something like that, um, that that gets easier, but. You know, and, until it's sort of like room temperature, or we can get there with refrigerant coils at like minus uh, minus twenty, minus thirty. You know, like a blast chiller kind of thing. You know, it's it's going to be. Hmm. But these are all steps on the path, right? And we're still learning a lot um, about you know na nano. What's the word? Uh, it's uh, it's like nano manipulation and and uh, yeah, sort of nano technology. Yeah, all this, this this nanotechnology down at that that sort of molecular level. 
is um it, it, it is exciting but it's the sort of thing that you know i i do hope that at some point it actually we, we can figure out a, a set of uh materials that can do that at, at decent temperatures but at the moment it's uh it's mm, looks promising and interesting though that's for sure Yep, it, it, it's a it's an interesting read, and as uh, I mean, as the guy says, you know, I don't want my lab to create unrealistic expectations. We're not going to have a breakthrough every year, yeah. but you know, this is is a completely new field, and it's it's one which I suspect is going to bring some very interesting results. These are very poorly understood materials," said uh, Efitov, whoever he is. Um, like you, I'm skimming. There's a lot of people mentioned in it. Instead of having to grow crystals, we can just turn the voltage knob or apply more pressure with stamps or change the rotation angle. This is he's talking about um, getting different effects out of the materials. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I find fascinating about uh, about carbon, so it started with nanotubes and then there's graphene, um, is that uh, and buckyballs, of course. Yeah, um, bucky full of minster. Yeah, that's it. Mr. Fullerene. Anyway, um, anyway, the thing that's interesting is that um, carbon for the longest time was thought to be ordinary, boring, and not particularly all that well. Well, boring and interesting. Not not interesting at all. And and uh, in in recent decades, it's turned out that there are certain architectures of uh, of something as simple as carbon that's turning out to be incredibly useful. So we're barely scratching the surface. And what other materials out there? So material science is fascinating, but um, it's the sort of thing I, we covered a little bit of it in my first year of engineering at, at uni, and then after that, I haven't had much else to do with it other than my uh, my only just my my personal fascination with it, and uh, it's uh, certainly very cool. I I always I, I'm not going to try and say here that I always found carbon particularly fascinating, but I always um, when I you know did basic chemistry um, for A level. Um, I always thought the clue to there being more to carbon than uh, a lot of people think is is graphite, you know, from which graphene is a kind of an extension. But the whole fact that that effectively consists of layers of um, carbon atoms in a grid floated, uh, you know, on top of another one by a layer of electrons. Um, and that in itself is a kind of clue to the fact that carbon is able to do some very interesting things at a you know at an atomic level. So that that was that was those two. I found both of those fascinating. Um, uh, Windows have uh, uh, Microsoft have introduced introduced Windows command line tools for developers. Um, and uh, we have a comment here from Weihan. Uh, Wait, what? The year of the Linux desktop is here. I'd hmm. never imagined it would look like this, um, which is because, of course, the uh, the new command line tools include a full Linux kernel for developers to do all sorts of interesting things with, uh, which is outside above my pay grade. I'll be honest. Um, wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> very, that's just, very, yeah. yeah, just wow, because. Microsoft has become very much uh, Linux friendly, certainly, I think, since uh, Satya, you know, uh, took control, because yes. in the Bulmer years, you know, I believe they described Linux as a cancer you know, <laughs> um, to be destroyed. Um, there we go. Oh. Uh, I hadn't heard that, but I don't doubt it. Um, but <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I was just reading this about um, you, you could run Linux apps in the uh, in WSL2, um, you know, like Docker. Windows. <laughs> there you go. Docker container for everything. Um, amazing. All right, there you go. It's just amazing. Microsoft has really changed, haven't they? 
And they have changed so much, so much. Um, in fact, actually, earlier earlier on today, Stephen Zinovsky um, made a tweet saying, I have an Uber story. Uh, and he says, uh, we were at a party or a, or a conference or something, and no one could get a cab. And this guy pulled out his phone, and he had a new app which would summon a car. And uh, so he used it, and a car came, and, uh, you know, everybody piled into the car uh, to get a lift back to town or whatever. And he said, and I had a Windows phone. So I was stuck, um, to which I replied, that's the one thing that Steve Ballmer did get right. Developers, developers, developers. Because what killed the Windows phone, as far as I can tell, is the lack of apps. It just never got the app support, and that killed it dead. There we are. Um, and, uh, you know, how Microsoft have changed. It is a, a completely different company in so many ways, Uh there we are. Uh, Google have uh, begun to talk about their mysterious new OS, which might replace Android, uh, which is, of course, Fuchsia. Um, if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, follow the link. We're kind of running out of time, really, John, aren't we? Um, yeah. I don't want to oh. get too deep into the weeds there. But uh, at, at Fuchsia, of course, being the sort of modular, scalable um, OS for everything. Interesting concept. Are you, are you really very familiar with the whole future thing? Not that Google let much no, out about it. No, it's um, my, my um, the thing that I've always found confusing was that you had uh, Android and you had Chrome OS, not the browser, Chrome OS. Mm. And just trying to figure out where Fuchsia, don't sure if I'm saying that right. Anyway. Yeah, Fuchsia. Yeah. Fuchsia. Yeah. I'm not, I'm just trying to understand like where that after even. The, after in. the magenta colored plant. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. I haven't been following. Well, okay. So you know, I think it's pretty obvious to anyone that 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 follows any of my stuff. They know that I don't run Android. I haven't run Android. I do have an Android tablet that I picked up as a freebie um, with a newspaper subscription, um, but that is the extent. Uh, and uh, I really don't stay too current with it. So I uh, I'm not familiar with the detail of the story, to be honest. And just skimming so, through it now, it's sort of. Um, I don't know. Sounds a bit meh to me, but anyway. <laughs> well, it, yeah, I mean, to some extent, even what Google have let out is that effectively it's an experimental internal OS. Um, the the idea behind it is that it would be modular and scale scalable. Uh, you know, the golden <laughs> the golden egg, isn't it? The uh, the holy grail, the one OS to rule them all. Um, that would you know, be able to run everything from embedded devices up to uh, you know, a full-blown workstation. Um, I think, to be honest, apart from the fact that obviously the people who work on it can experiment to their heart's content with ideas, I, I also have postulated before that in some ways, you know, Google created Android and then they set it free and gave it away to handset makers and said, do with it what you will, um, which may have, you know, garnered uh, market share for early Android devices, but also made it into a bloody mess. Um, I, I think to some extent Fuchsia may well be, in the longer term, um, Google's way to have an OS which is under their control. And then they could, you know, like Apple, they could control the updates and the security pushouts and so on. And because if they create a new OS, they don't have to give it away. They could make people license it and put restrictions on it in the, in the way that um, Microsoft or whatever do, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. Not 
yeah, there's very little detail ever comes out about uh, Fuchsia. But it's an interesting project if you're, you know, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, there we go. And I'm going to skim over the uh, security and privacy before we wrap up, John. Um, the UK want to introduce a new law for IoT device security. Um, part of me wants to say bloody good. The part of me that reads UK government goes, oh, my God, please, no. Because mm. um, uh, legislation on IoT de- device security, I really feel like I should be saying yes, 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 away with these dreadful, insecure pieces of crap. But the minute you say UK government to legislate, I go, oh, dear God, help us. Because they will have no idea and they will come up with the stupidest law in the world, which will actually probably hamper people for the next decade. So I don't know where I well, really don't know what I feel about that unless the UK government employ, uh, you know, some consultants who actually know what they're talking about, I fear. Uh, Malwarebytes have added two new real-time protection features. Uh, If you're interested in that, follow the link. Uh, Google are adding an auto-delete web tracking to uh, history. Um, Effectively, Google are saying that they will only keep the data they collect about you for three months, I believe, before they throw it away. Um, Whether or not that's a step forward or not is debatable, I suppose. Um, Because, let's face it... um, I don't know. I suppose it's better than them keeping everything they know about you forever. But I suppose it's a little bit less creepy. But... <laughs> Marginally less. <laughs> Marginally. Uh, I suppose it's it's something, isn't it? Um, mm. um, that's from the BBC News. And there are other stories about that because I, I think I've had that um, on the sheet for a week. Um, great, I suppose. I haven't looked into it enough to see what it really entails. Uh, of course, a lot of these companies, Facebook, Google, whatever, are... Um, throwing up or throwing out security and privacy crumbs at the minute um many of which i suspect are what can we what can we say we're doing which looks good and will help keep legislators off our back because um i think they all know that the mire they've um, created is going to bring down regulation on their heads um and i think at the minute a lot of what they're doing is pr i'll be honest yeah and, and the other thing that's interesting about this is that they say that the, the minimum period is um, keep for three months and then delete automatically. Uh, where's my option to don't keep any ever? Mm, precisely. Because like, in terms of relevance of that, that search history, if you're Google and you're selling this to other people, then in the most useful period you're going to be selling, it's going to be in those first few months that you've got it because it's, it's current and relevant. Yeah, I mean, you, what you know, what advertiser wants to know what you were googling two years ago? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> they want to know that you you searched for about refrigerators this morning because your refrigerator's broken down. So then Amazon or whoever can send you a a targeted um, annoyance campaign. Yeah, <laughs> do need a new need a new refrigerator. Refrigerator. <sighs> mm. Anyway, mm. it's it just seems like one of those token gestures that really exactly doesn't that's what I'm saying. It looks it it, it looks good, but. In the end, I, what I thought was great. So they're only going to keep data on me for three months. Well, that's something I suppose. But like mm. you, I immediately thought. But in reality, do that people they are selling to really give a monkeys about what I was googling last year? They don't. Um, this one, this one amused me. I, I put this in partly because of the SAR in the in the headline. Um, mm. Sinister secret backdoor found in networking gear, perfect for government espionage. 
The Chinese are, oh, no, wait, sorry, it's Cisco. Um, this is in the register. Um, of course, after all the hoo-ha about Huawei and uh, their alleged back doors in their uh, telecommunications uh, routers, which turned out to be a, a seven to ten year old story based around, um, I believe, an SSH um, implementation in some Vodafone uh, routers in Italy, mm. um, which was, you know, touted originally as um, Huawei routers in telecom, you know, major telecom have Chinese backdoors, which turned out actually to be perhaps poorly, you know, uh, documented SSL um, implementation, which was there apparently for support purposes and uh, was withdrawn on, you know, when Vodafone found it and asked Huawei to get rid of it, they did. Um, so actually, that was a bit of a non-story, except, of course, shouting Huawei has Chinese backdoors makes more headlines. Um, of course, uh, subsequent to that, it turned out that actually Cisco's uh, record on security and backdoors and vulnerabilities in their uh, telecommunications equipment is far from spotless. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> if you want to read about it, you can follow follow the link to the register and have a little bit of a laugh at their snark. Um, mm. well, just on this one, oddly enough, um, uh, it's interesting that this story was in the list that uh, to talk about just briefly because uh, we this one actually came across my table at work um, because we get notifications as well of uh, of vulnerabilities that are the, and anything that's got Cisco on it. Obviously, you've got to have a look at that. Uh, and uh, we are currently evaluating a series of uh, of core Nexus switches, nine thousand series, um, for a set of applications in our network. They haven't gone online yet, so we weren't impacted by this one. But uh, hmm, guess what? We'll be patching before they go online. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what I found uh, most surprising when I started to look into that story um, was that for all this, you know, uh, anti-Chinese. Uh, braggadicio, I suppose, um, that seems to be going on at the moment. Uh, Cisco, you know, one of the biggest US telecommunications uh, gear makers, has a pretty bloody poor record when it comes to uh, security vulnerabilities. That's it. They don't, you don't need the Chinese hackers to hack into stuff, right? And Chinese, you know, it's because Cisco doing a good enough job of leaving in open doors for everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. There it's we are. Well, it's all good stuff, isn't it? All good stuff. Well, John, I'm not quite sure how much we've recorded because we were talking for a while before we started the show, but I think we've covered enough stories. Oh, go on. I've had this one on the board for some time, so I suppose I should chuck it in. Uh, just a snippet. Um, etch a snap camera puts a modern spin on a toy from the 1950s. Uh, this is about a week or so old, this story. Uh, it was on Digital Trends. Um, can't draw on an Etch-A-Sketch? Snap a photo with the Etch-A-Snap and the camera will draw out the scene for you. Um, this is based on a Raspberry Pi and um, basically you take a photograph. No, I don't want a cookie. Thank you. <laughs> uh yeah you you take a photograph and over the course of i think about 45 minutes or something uh a 240 by 144 pixel drawing uh is created <laughs> uh wow. oh no, yeah, it, take, it takes 15 minutes to an hour to develop the image depending on how elaborate the lines are needed to recreate the photograph um wow that's just uh it's one know. of those because we could just yet another thing you can do with a raspberry pie. It's uh, 
that's, uh, that's great. Oh, oh man, that's mm. <laughs> it. Really is one of those. You Some did what? Time in their hands. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. That was my thought. Like, do you really have nothing better to think of? But uh, yeah, cool nonetheless. Very cool. Very adorable. Um, yeah. <laughs> in a sort of geeky, uh, you know, nerdy. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you climb up the mountain? Because it was bloody well there. That's there we nice. are. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, I've had that one on the board and not got round to it. So, um, John, this is the bit where we do the wrap up. So where we wrap up is where you get to plug uh, your various endeavours online or other ways. And uh, awesome. uh, take it away, John. Plug yourself. All right, cool. Um uh, we did talk about this a little earlier before, but um, I uh, I do have a um, a small network of shows that I um, produce, and uh, one of them is, uh, is pragmatic, the other is uh, uh, causality and analytical. Uh, other show network is also is, uh, there is Nutrium. Uh, you can find all of that at engineered.network. And um, I'm also uh, one of the three hosts of uh, Bubble Sort, and that's at bubblesort.show, uh, and you can find it there, along with the Bubble Sort TV stuff that uh, Vic and friends are working on as well. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me on um, the Fediverse, which is what I like to call it. I don't like to call it Mastodon anymore because Mastodon is just one of the uh, activity pub uh, applications that are out there. There's also Pleroma and MissKey, and there's a few other different ones as well. So they just refer to it all as the Fediverse. So if you want to get in touch with me, the best way is on the Fediverse. And that's at chigi at engineer.space. And you just type that in and search in any, of the, any Mastodon instance, any Pleroma or MissKey instance, and you'll find me there. Okay, right. And you are, of course, on Twitter. I am on Twitter occasionally. If you do at mention me, I will always respond to you for sure. And you can also direct message me as well. Uh, and that's fine too. I uh, I do drop, I, I do duck in and out of Twitter from time to time. Very good. Okay. Well, I am, of course, on the Twitters as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. Uh, the show occasionally tweets as at Essential Apple. Uh, you can find all of our stuff over at EssentialApple.com. So uh, that's about it. Thank you for coming on the show, John. Well, thanks, um, thanks for inviting me. Uh, that's fine. Uh, this is also where I thank uh, all the slackers for all the stories they put in the Slack room. This is where I thank people who support us, whether by Patreon or Pinecast Tips Jar or otherwise. And uh, that's about it for this week. We will finish with John Nemo and his hardware store. And uh, John, Chidgy and I will say goodbye. So, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. And I'd like to say if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both Patreon and the Pinecast Tips Jar where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show. Uh, Or even if you're really keen, you could set up a recurring payment. And thank you very, very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club Podcast, the Geekiest Show Ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh, Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I've forgotten. So why not go over to mymac.com 
take a look at the available podcast and take a listen. So, guess. Sorry, I'm just boogieing out to that. You know, well, that's playing. Is, you know, I'm shaking it is my so head. Catchy. I'm shaking my ass. Ass. Mm. <laughs> I'm shaking my ass. Ass. I'm shaking my ass. <laughs> ass. <laughs> I'm sorry. Guys, joke. Guys, joke. Mostly clean. I do have a tip for you. It's a very, very quick one. That's why we've been going on about nothing. Oh, no change there. Um, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm interrupting Can I do you this again. tip? I'll be, yes, I'll be quiet now. Daz's tips. Guys jokes. Only. Thank goodness. On the My Mac podcast. Essential Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.